It's time for Vegan Radio. The Vegan Radio Show. <laughs> By vegans, about vegans. For vegans. Two on vegans. to vegans. Vegans on both <laughs> sides and a vegan in the middle. Vegan on vegan action. Every <laughs> week. Uh-oh, we'll uh-oh. pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> for, you, for those of you in New Zealand, we got plenty of that. New Zealand. That's right. That's where they invented the vegan sexual. Oh, yeah. Oh. One of my favorite inventions. Also known as <laughs> the vegan kiwi. <laughs> kiwi. I think coconuts are my favorite. Kiwis. Aphrodisiac. Do they eat kiwis uh, in New Zealand? <laughs> what? Where are we going with this? Because, <laughs> you know, maybe they've got Thanksgiving there, too, and they're going to be... Last week I was in uh, the Caribbean. Oh, that's right. St. John. You were swimming in the Caribbean. Being a vegan sexual. Did you meet other vegan sexuals? No. <laughs> <laughs> I met a lot of french fries. Did you eat a lot of kiwi? No, it's pretty weird. There's not that much uh, fresh fruit and stuff that I could find there. Really? A lot of coconut blender drinks, so. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> a lot of rum. Uh-huh. So. Was it fresh oh. and organic? Oh, I'm sure. Um... Yeah, they have like bad apples and just a few. A lot of bad <laughs> apples. There's a lot of bad apples around here too, though. So. There was one one extra bad apple when I got there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we missed you. <laughs> yeah, it was Speak the longest yourself. week of no. your life. I bet. Yeah. Actually, I missed you. Missed you, bacon. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it was uh, a tropical environment here while you were gone, actually. I know. I I should have went this week when it was twice as cold. That's right. And half as warm. I was there to photograph a wedding, <laughs> so I didn't really have a choice of what week it was. Um, oh, well. On today's show, we have Melanie Joy, who uh, has a book. What's that book called, Megan? She's got a book called The Strategic Action for Animals. And um, she's a social psychologist, a professor, personal coach. She's been involved in the animal liberation movement since 1989 and has worked as an activist, educator, and organizer. Her academic areas of specialization include the psychosociology of violence towards animals and humans and organizational behavior. She's written a number of articles, and she's been interviewed for magazines, books, and radio on her work. She also teaches psychology and sociology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She holds a Ph.D. in psychology from Saybrook Graduate School and a master's degree in education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She's almost got as many degrees as I do. Wow. She is well-schooled. <laughs> She's going to tell us why we're wrong I know. <laughs> and in how many ways. <laughs> well, mm. Most our guests do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guests. So we have the uh, turkey holocaust coming up. The turkey holocaust. That's right. Next week. Uh, well, I think the, I think the holocaust <laughs> is ongoing. They've already been frozen and delivered at this point. Mm. Yeah. It's too late. Uh, too late this year, but not too late for next year. <clears throat> it's not too late for people to just leave those butterballs on the shelves. So PETA had a uh, breaking investigation, holiday horrors for turkeys. More than 72 million of the nearly 270 million turkeys killed for food every year in the U.S. are slaughtered for holiday meals. This year, just prior to the flesh-focused Thanksgiving holiday, PETA conducted an undercover investigation lasting more than two months at the factory farms of Avia Gin Turkeys Incorporated, the self-proclaimed world's leading poultry breeding company. Avia Gin. I don't like that name. 
<laughs> it reminds me of genetics and birds. That's not a hey. good combination. Yeah. And flight. Um, <laughs> Flightless. So it's the normal stuff we uh, report about slaughterhouses. I um, <clears throat> for any of you familiar with Gail Eisnett's work on uh, the book Slaughterhouse, or have ever heard of any type of factory farming and slaughterhouse operation, these uh, stories will be kind of familiar. But I have some um, notes, excerpts from the investigators' log notes of this uh, current one. If you go on PETA's website, you can see the video of some of these abuses. Do you are you saying you have excerpts from the from book the, Slaughterhouse? No, these are from the this current investigation. Okay, um, from PETA's current investigation. And um, some of the things that were videotaped. So you're just giving a shout out to Gail Eisnett's Slaughterhouse book. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that this isn't. You know, every time this happens. It's a lot of similar things like mutilating birds, abusing them beyond right. beyond what, you know, the, Just, the normal killing. And, yeah, pure torture because... And then, you know, sexual simulations with the animals and mm-hmm. kind of this... It's It seems like uh, people that work in these situations, you know, they have to... Well, the psychology is what they're doing. Is passing yeah, the, on the oppression. Yeah, the psychology is that they feel powerless, and so the only thing that they have power over is the animals, and then so the animals get kind of extra torture. Extra torture. Extra torture. But besides for our, being killed. Our listeners who haven't heard about these things, I've got these investigators' log notes. Since we can't show you a video on the radio, lay them on us, kid. <laughs> September fourth, two thousand eight. The birds are in barns so full of dust and dander that it's difficult to breathe, even when standing on the outside of the barn. Um, in the video, you'll see that all the workers are wearing masks over their faces. The door of the barn is open, and the dirty air from the barn is blowing in your face. It's constant abuse all night. These men hit and smacked and abused the birds in what appeared to me to be retribution for the birds struggling to get away out of apparent fear and also as a means of entertainment. Friday, September 5th, 2008. Severe throwing of turkeys today was like nothing I've ever seen, even in my experience working in a slaughterhouse. All the men threw the birds as hard as a man can throw any one or thing weighing 60 to 80 pounds. They throw them like this instead of handing the birds gently to the man on the scaffolding who could more humanely place the bird in the appropriate coop. Sometimes they missed the coop and were throwing a turkey at and the bird would fly full force into the side of the metal truck, hit it, and fall between the truck and the scaffolding to the ground, hitting bars and metal all the way down, four to five feet. Uh, the next day, I saw two co-workers kill at least two seemingly healthy turkeys today. They simply grabbed their necks and twisted them or stepped on their heads. The birds were then left to fall and flop around, bleeding from the mouth as they died. They looked to have suffered for minutes. My supervisor watched my co-worker's behavior with me. I had a conversation with the supervisor about the killing, and he said it doesn't really matter with these birds because they are not worth that much. Thursday, September 11th, they used a 2 by 4 board once to kill several, several hundred turkeys at one time. They were both laughing at the time they were telling the story. They were joking about killing these hundreds of birds if they have gotten away with it. Another worker said that they had seen a worker kill two birds by injecting a substance into their brains with a syringe. One bird was injected with a turkey semen and the other was injected with unspecified acid. So these are some of the things that happen. 
So intense. And it goes on and on. On and on with this stuff, and all of it's uh, in the video, too, so you can watch it on the web if you're so inclined. It's so interesting how um, it just seems like we're in kind of still in kind of like cave woman and man days where like I still I'm still having a conversation with somebody today um, where they're like, well, you know, it just tastes good. And I'm like, but, you know, you got to look at the whole picture. You got to take in the whole perspective. And it's like just because something tastes good doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, moral and ethical perspectives that you need to look at and. You know, you shouldn't be killing something just because it tastes good. You wouldn't be like yeah. eating human flesh just because it tastes good. It's like look at the situation, the whole situation. Look at the moral obligation. Yeah, there's lots of things that feel good that aren't uh, ethically sound, you know. Correct. cocaine. <laughs> sleeping with prostitutes. Yeah. Wow. I go away for a few seconds. I- <laughs> You guys are completely changed the topic when I when I left. What what are we talking about now? Hold on, we're talking about things that feel good but aren't uh, oh aren't good, good for yeah. you. good to do aren't good for the soul of of humanity. Yeah. Um, sure, yeah. But uh, but you know, hey, what the hell? I mean, feel to good? some people, probably killing other humans feels good. You know, that's pro- yeah. On certain days, <laughs> <laughs> might. Wait a minute. Wait. Uh, I know. <laughs> I've already been I accused of I'm not, justifying not caring that. about humans. So. What? <laughs> what? I care about them. I care about them a lot. <laughs> um, Too much. So one thing you can do and instead of eating a turkey is uh, the Farm Sanctuary Adopt-A-Turkey Project. And I believe Woodstock Sanctuary also has that and probably some other sanctuaries around the country. So if you have a favorite sanctuary or... You want to look some up on the internet, you can adopt a turkey. Um, in the case of Farm Sanctuary, it's a one-time donation of $25, and you get an official adoption certificate with a photograph of the turkey, a one-year membership to Farm Sanctuary, and a subscription to the organization's quarterly magazine. It goes over really well with the kids. I've done it a number of times for my nieces and nephews, and they really enjoy having the picture. They get really excited about their turkey <laughs> that's alive. <laughs> yeah. And you can Google, Google vegan Thanksgiving recipes. There's so many awesome, tasty recipes out there that you can have on Thanksgiving Day that do not involve violence. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You don't have to celebrate uh, Thanksgiving by killing things. Exactly. You don't have to drink blood, eat feces. Drink blood. (laughs) That's right. And if you're not killing things, every day can be a holy day. Every dinner can be a Thanksgiving dinner. Yes, that's true. It's really nice. How come you haven't played the um, turkey uh, song? I've, I've, the CD's missing. <gasps> we could all sing it. Missing? Oh, no, I don't think we so. We gather together for no. yams, beans, and cranberry sauce. But have you given much thought lately to the turkey holocaust? We gather together Yams, beans, and cranberry sauce But have you given much thought lately To the turkey holocaust 200 million noble birds Slaughtered every fall Ain't no difference between Hitler, Stalin And the folks at
some tips for um, how you can survive Thanksgiving as a vegetarian or vegan from our good friend Alexandra Harcherek. <laughs> <laughs> never heard of him. Sorry, she's, she's a student at... Uh, oh, never heard Rich, of her? It's the newspaper at, the, at Rowan University. What does she say, Scott? She says uh, that you can... Well, here's a one tip. Be in charge of making at least one protein-rich vegetarian dish like baked tofu or white bean chili. You know. Here, here. Something super tasty and decadent. That's what I say. Yeah, well, we know how you are. <laughs> that was another one. Don't just load up on carbohydrates and dessert, you know, unless that's your thing. <laughs> Take advantage of the ubiquitous garden ubiquitous. salad cr- crudités and veggie sides. I don't even know what a crudité is, but I'm going to take crudite? advantage of it. It's a raw vegetable. Oh, it's wonderful. Crudite. Uh, if you're going to a relative's house, make sure you have a nutritious breakfast beforehand and pack a few healthy snacks, <laughs> like raw almonds, just in case. Because you're going to be sitting, you're going to be sitting I, at the little kids' table I, eating yeah. uh, iceberg lettuce. And may I, I add, know, bring this, bottled water. This person <laughs> sounds real, real healthy. Bring a bring a bottle of alcohol to get you through. There's another one. Do your research. It is almost guaranteed at any time you will get together with extended family. Someone is going to hound you about your diet. Anticipate their questions and have a good response. Bring a copy of Earthlings to play after dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I suppose, yeah, that'd be great. That is kind of an entertaining. It kind of leads you in slowly. Uh, where do you get your protein and vi- vital nutrients? How do you maintain a healthy balance? And finally, don't expect others to accommodate your specific dietary needs. No. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like this person's uh, take responsibility for your own the, food. Uh, and cook know. something. The protein myths and the. Uh, no, but you're going to get asked that. I mean, yeah, it's, no, I it's, mean, but yeah, it's, it's all right. You can check uh, out Alexander's site, afoodcoma.com. And I think I think just like number one, <laughs> what she mentioned um, is prepare a couple items that you know are awesome and tasty, and bring them. And show your relatives like how fantastic vegan food tastes. Yeah, and you, you should can't do that on, on all times you're going to visit relatives, not just Thanksgiving. True, but we're talking about surviving Thanksgiving right now. That's right. <laughs> my my plan is to not go where there's turkeys being served. Well, I think it's you know it's good I think to do I've both. I've avoided turkeys for a while now. It's good to do both because you want to infiltrate the system too. You know. Yeah. You want to change people's hearts and minds, Darlique. <laughs> well, my absence will make them rethink next year. Oh, because <laughs> they can't have fun without me. And the other thing you can do is, if you know you're going to be among a lot of family who might be taunting you about the turkey, have your own vegan Thanksgiving, like our friend Charlotte Caponia. You know, and well, have it be not a name names. <laughs> Why not? She deserves a name. Here's what George Bernard Shaw had to say about it. 
A dinner? How horrible! <laughs> I am to be made the pretext for killing all those wretched animals and birds and fish? Thank wretched. you for nothing. If it were, it would be a fast instead of a feast. Say a solemn three days abstention from corpses in my honor. I could at least pretend to believe that I was disinterested. Blood sacrifices are not in my line. Ooh, who is that? That's George Bernard Shaw That's turning, down, yeah. turning down a dinner invitation. <laughs> uh, That's maybe. awesome. I'm not sure. He might not. He might have been accepting one. <laughs> <laughs> While we ourselves are the living graves of murdered beasts, he probably said it like this: "Of murdered beasts." Murdered. How can we expect any ideal conditions on this earth? Mm. It's true. What did Gandhi say when he was invited to Thanksgiving? <laughs> <laughs> his opinion is well known he does not regard flesh food as necessary for us at any stage or under any clime in which it is possible for human beings ordinarily to live he, hold, he held flesh food to be unsuited to our species nice gotta love the Gandhi <laughs> <laughs> the Gandhi he's better than the Google you're listening to Vegan Radio www.veganradio.com go vegan go vegan go vegan Melanie Joy, Strategic Action for Animals, a handbook on strategic movement building, organizing, and activism for animal liberation. What do you have to say for yourself, Melanie? <laughs> well, I'm glad the phone is working, for one. It's good to be able to hear your voices, and it's good to uh, be able to talk about this uh, really important issue with you. I wrote Strategic Action for Animals um, because I, I really believe in the power of the animal liberation movement. And um, I know there's a cynical attitude. There can be a cynical attitude toward the movement and toward activists and um, a lot of division between different factions within the movement. But I really um, I wrote the book because I just really believe in the goal of the movement, you know, to create a world where animals no longer suffer at human hands and, um, and also in its proponents, regardless of their orientation within the movement. So, you know, whether they're so-called abolitionists, reformists, or welfareists, or simply um, working on a single-issue campaign, people who sacrifice their time and money and energy to make the world a better place for animals are, are people who I want to support. So... Are you talking about what works or what doesn't work in the movement? I'm talking about um, you know the the passion, um, the commitment, the conviction, and um, the courage of, of activists from all over the movement, from all different um, aspects of the movement. And I just I have great admiration for people who are working to make the world a better place for animals. Um, and so I, I wrote the book um, to address what doesn't work um, and to hopefully help what doesn't work start working but also to address what does work and to help people do what they're doing well already, but do it better, more effectively. Awesome. That answers your question. Yeah. What works? <laughs> <laughs> well, we work. We work hard. That's um, for sure. And, you know, but, but none of us is perfect. Um, I think there's, there's commitment. There's, like I said, there's a lot of passion in, in general when people become active, and, and you guys can probably identify with that people who choose to become active in the movement are usually people who have been touched very deeply, um, you know, by the issue and become really dedicated to the cause. Um, I've worked in a lot of different movements, and, I mean, people are dedicated in all different movements, but I see in the animal liberation movement a certain level of, um, of drive um, that I haven't seen as much in other movements. And so I think what works is that, it, it, to me, it's amazing that we as activists get less training than we would to um, uh, work a cash register, 
you know, we're trying to save the world, um, and, <laughs> and yet we're able to do it fairly effectively, at least um, in, in many ways we're able to, to work fairly effectively. Um, and so I see people making um, strategic choices all the time. I mean, we all use strategy. You know, if you're driving down the street and you have to detour, you know, you're, you're going to be strategic. You're going to have to figure out the best way to get to where you need to go based on what you have to deal with. So it's the same thing with activists. Um, what doesn't work is that we don't have, um, uh, you know, we haven't had the tools or the information, um, uh, the the skill. We have the skill, but we don't have the information as to how to implement the skill um, as effectively as we could. I mean, there are plenty of movements that have come before our movement um, and people within this movement that have done, you know, tremendous work. And to be able to not have to reinvent the wheel over and over again and to be able to just say okay so this is how you do it or this is one way of doing it that could be effective um helps people save a lot of time and energy and not have to you know use trial and error when they're um say starting a campaign or working on an issue so is this more about developing strategies then or about um working together with others or does it incorporate both yeah it's a great question it's um actually about developing and implementing strategy on all levels, um, movement building, organizing, and um, individual advocacy and activism. Because strategy is, um, you know, strategy is about figuring out how to get from where we are now to where we ultimately want to be um, in the most effective way, the most direct way possible. Um, so if we want animal liberation, for instance, um, it, it, we need to understand, um, for example, what makes an effective movement. How does a movement grow? What are the stages? You know, there are pre fairly predictable stages, eight stages, through which a movement evolves. And understanding what these stages are can help us have um, a, a more accurate perspective on our place in the movement, um, understanding that the movement itself is built up of various sub-movements, um, you know, such as the anti-fur movement, the vegetarian, vegan movement, um, can help us work together more effectively and then I write about um, how to have a, a effective organization, um, how to work effectively with other people or a strategic organization, how to run a campaign um, to develop strategic tactics, to have a strategic plan so you're aware of how the uh, choices that you make um, fit in with the bigger picture of the movement as a whole and um, are in alignment with what you really want to accomplish within your organization and in the particular campaign. And then I also talk about uh, activism on the individual level, how to, how to communicate with people one-on-one, -on -one, um, how to talk effectively, and how to take care of ourselves as activists so that we don't burn out or end up being ineffective or counterproductive even when we're um, talking to other people or in our efforts in general. Right. I, I imagine communication must uh, help that along a lot. Communication is, um, it, it's very important to know the principles of strategic communication. Um, I mean, partly just because it, it helps you communicate more effectively, but also partly because the more emotional an issue is, uh, the more challenging it is to communicate effectively. Um, anybody who's had an argument with their partner probably knows <laughs> what I'm talking about. So, um, you know, this issue is so, animal rights, is, <laughs> animal liberation is such a, a, a loaded issue, and it's so, it just, it touches people so deeply, understandably. Um, and it can be really frustrating for activists, and I know I've been in that position myself a number of times where you're talking to somebody and you're saying, but 
you just don't get it. Don't and you then, understand what I'm saying? And then they're saying, you're, you're too emotional. Right, right. You're too emotional and not recognizing. If you can recognize the kind of defensiveness, um, the, the natural um, and almost inevitable defensiveness of a listener, um, you, you can, first of all, you're less likely to incite defenses. And, and secondly, if defenses do arise, you're in a better position to um, navigate around them. And, and communicate to the person in spite of their defenses. And if we don't recognize that, you know, we can easily re- resort to shaming and blaming, you know, or it's, you know, kind of the classic frustrated um, act, you know, the scenario where you're talking to somebody about meat-eating and assuming the facts are going to sell the ideology, which they don't most of the time. If you just knew the truth about what happens to animals in, you know, so-called factory farms, you'd never mm-hmm. want to eat meat again. Right. But more often than not, people hear the truth and they still eat meat. And it's really confounding for somebody who heard the truth and never ate meat again after hearing that, you know, and then we can resort to, you know, but what ifs? what if you had to kill the animal yourself, would you still eat meat? You know, and um, these arguments often um, don't work. In fact, they can be counterproductive. So really understanding um, the paradigm, the, the, the framework of the listener and also your own paradigm and um, your own emotional um, reactiveness can go a long way to helping activists uh, just feel more empowered in themselves and be more effective um, in the process when communicating with others. So do you advise in your book to kind of to stay away from emotionality? No, not at all. Um, to, um, to We can be responsive without being reactive. I mean, I think emotionality is uh, it's kind of a broad term, like what kind of emotionality are we talking about? Um, you know, a certain amount of anger at the injustice in the, injustice in the world is normal and appropriate, but anger that is, um, you know, untended to or exaggerated can be toxic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, health, I would say healthy emotionality and, and recognizing that one of the ways that um, proponents of movements have been discredited historically um, has been by portraying them as too, you know, quote, sentimental or too emotional. And therefore, if you're emotional, you can't be rational. We have this false dichotomy. Right. You're either rational or you're emotional, when, in fact, you can be both. And, and rational people um, are often emotional when they hear about something that, um, you know, violates their in- sense of integrity and justice. Well, Scott's our most rational person here. What do you think, Scott? <laughs> I'm also our most emotional person here. <laughs> you are. I don't know. I, I don't know. You haven't come to cry on my shoulder recently. <laughs> I've been trying to suck it in and be a strong individual, you know, <laughs> uh, but it, I don't think that's going to work. So, Melanie, um, you know, there's lately there's been, I don't know if I want to call it a rift, but two different camps, you know, of vegans where, you know, one camp kind of talks about animal welfare and making like small changes like Farm Sanctuary. And then you have, um, who's our other friend? Gary Francione. Gary Francione, who mm-hmm. is like, you know, don't hide your veganism at every chance you get talk about veganism you know with people don't talk about animal welfare how what's your take on that well i write a little bit about this in my book um the you know you're talking about the so-called welfare rights debate yeah um and i think it's it's a it's an issue that really weakens the movement um, you know, for the sake of having an inclusive definition of the movement, uh, movement I mean, I know that abolitionists or some abolition, abolitionists have said, well, the so-called movement, you know, arguing that there isn't really a movement because we're not all unified in terms of the approach that we want to take to achieve animal liberation. Um, 
And, uh, and I, I think there's a false dichotomy between abolitionists and welfareists, and I think that it's really important to be able to have a broader, you know, to develop a broader perspective and see the ways in which we actually are unified. And um, regardless as to whether you're, you know, working for what you would call animal rights or animal welfare, you know, we're all working toward animal liberation, which means, you know, it may mean liberating animals from, you know, crates, or it may mean liberating animals from human consumption altogether. Um, it's just a matter of degree. In answer to your question, um, I, I think the, the welfare rights debate is it's divisive. Um, I think it's a false dichotomy. I think it, um, it's an argument that takes up time and energy that could be best used elsewhere, working for animals. Um, and, and every social movement in history, to my knowledge, has relied on both welfare and abolition, mm -hmm. has re relied on both camps working simultaneously. Um, for the benefit of the whole movement. Right. In the system and outside the system. Sorry? I said in the system and outside the system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we need to do both, and there are a number of reasons why, and I, I address this in, in my book. And um, one thing that concerns me, um, and I would consider, I mean, I, I actually couldn't label myself an abolitionist or a welfareist. I believe in the abolition of animal suffering, using animals for human humans, period. Um, how we go about getting there, that's a different story. But one thing that does concern me is that abolitionists' argument um, tends to stem from a single premise, which is regulation increases animal use. Um, and the assumption is stated as fact, but it's actually just an assumption. The only data um, that they offer to support this assertion is that animal suffering has increased over the years. So, in other words, the argument is that, you know, the increase in animal suffering is somehow proof that welfare reforms don't work. Um, but this is a cause and effect relationship that's actually impossible to prove. How do we know that the increase in animal suffering exists simply because we have implemented some animal welfare reforms? Um, you know, there are countless factors that can account for the increase in suffering. Corporatization, the increased concentration of power in animal agribusinesses, decreased USDA regulations in, in meatpacking plants, more, you know, quote, advanced technology in the sciences and in animal agribusiness industries which allow for more animals to be used and processed, on and on. Um, and so it might, you know, it may well be that reforms, as well as abolitionist measures, have slowed what would have otherwise been an even more extensive problem. I think we just, we can't possibly know, and, and that's my guess. Um, and also, welfareists or reformists allow, um, uh, become kind of more radical as abolitionists. Um, continue with their actions. Like, so for instance, the HSUS, um, you know, now, now they have a farmed animal decision. And they're able to do that because of groups like PETA that make the mainstream, well, make what was radical look more mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, Melanie, we have to take a quick break for Station ID, and we're going to come back and talk to you some more about this. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Farmer Brown. <laughs> We're back with Melanie Joy, <coughs> who is the author of Strategic Action for Animals, a handbook of strategic movement building, organizing, and activism for animal liberation. You're also a resident of Massachusetts, aren't you? Yes, I am. Cambridge. So we got that in common. Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 so I'm on the east Finding side. commonalities? <laughs> Shout out to Cambridge. I love that place. <laughs> 
Yeah, Scott Scott used to live around that area. Yeah, it worked many years at Passim. Well, not many. A couple. Oh, yeah. I was there today, actually. <laughs> yeah, you can't stay away. Great vegan pizza. It's a little addictive. <laughs> now, um, how do you feel about some of the tactics of the movement, like PETA using sexuality to sell the vegan message, mm. um, the lettuce ladies, and the? do you think that? hurts the movement? I do. Um, and I've written about this also in my book um, a little bit. I, I, I do. I think the goal of the movement, just like the goal of any social movement, needs to be to attract as many supporters as possible so we can tip the scales. Um, and we don't attract people when we um, promote ideas that are offensive to certain groups of people. And also when we, you know, if we're challenging human privilege and <clears throat> And yet, um, you know, exalting male privilege, for instance, um, we're giving a mixed message. And I do think it's very problematic. And, um, you know, having, having seen this and you know, being in a, a woman and myself in the movement, um, it's, it's been a problem for me personally, but it's been more of a problem in that I've, I've witnessed people who might otherwise have joined the movement choose not to because they didn't feel that it was inclusive and they felt that... Um, some tactics, in fact, were discriminatory. And this is not just referring to women. Um, you know, people uh, who are in lower socioeconomic brackets, people of color, um, the movement is still, you know, typically a, a white, middle to upper class movement. And it's not necessarily because this is the demographic that happens to care the most about animals. Um, I think it's because we haven't done a great job of reaching out to other people who may well be um, people who care about animals, people working in other movements who... Um, would like to um, unite with us. and um, Do you talk about how, how we would do that? Um, how we would do it? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think we need to make a commitment to, you know, having a dialogue in our organizations, um, you know, ongoing dialogue in our organizations and in conferences, which I think is now starting um, at AR 2008 where I was, I spoke. Um, this, this dialogue was, was happening and I was happy to see that. Um, but about these issues, um, you know, talk to, I'm not in a position to, I mean, I can, I can speak as a woman, but I'm not in a position to talk to how to, about how to speak to, um, you know, for instance, African Americans, um, you know, people from different demographic areas than myself. Um, I think we need to talk with them. I think we need to um, open up dialogue among ourselves and listen to the people who are in the movement who feel like they haven't been given enough of a voice or who feel like their particular group has not been included in the movement in a way that it could be. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how those communication channels could be opened. Um, I imagine uh, when you talk about activist groups, it's usually groups in a local area, I imagine, and then as far as national groups... Um, are there any uh, that are large enough that would, they could be communicating over the Internet and organizing that way? And are those kinds of things addressed? Well, that's a great in, – in my book, are they addressed or – Well, yeah, I mean – In general, by, are they being addressed? As part of communication or part of working together? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that I say is um, really kind of – encouraging people to reflect upon their own assumptions, their own stereotypes. You know, we as activists and advocates, you know, who do we choose to speak to? Who do we choose to re reach out to, um, you know, in our smaller local organizations? And if we're not reaching out to, you know, people who aren't, you know, like us in some ways, well, why not? And what kind of stereotypes are in our mind that might be preventing us from doing that? You know, for instance, um, you know, there, there's there's this um, assumption, incorrect assumption, that, you know, people, 
in, in lower socioeconomic brackets, for instance, may not have the, the time, the energy, the means to, to care about animals, to care about these issues. But um, in my experience, just in, individually and in working with smaller groups, that's not, in fact, the, the case. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's a starting point would be to, you know, for groups to start reflecting on really, you know, taking a look at what their demographic does look like. And if it's not diverse, you know, making a commitment to diversity and asking themselves why it's not um, and, you know, really starting from there. And in general, I mean, the, the movement is not 100%, you know, homogeneous. We can talk, you know, within our smaller groups and within the larger groups of the movement, talk with the people whose groups, as I said, aren't, aren't represented enough um, and get their feedback and input as to, you know, recommendations for how to start having a broader conversation and doing more outreach. Yeah, it seems to be that in um, communities um, and the lower socioeconomic uh, status, there isn't that much access to um, good whole foods and vegetables, and uh, the grocery stores in that type of neighborhood tend to be a lot more limited in options and more full of processed food and stuff. So there's this whole systematic problem going on that I think also promotes uh, you know, consumption of more animal products and just low-quality food in general that I agree, and um, you know, and this is a good example of interlocking oppressions. You know, so so um, you know, we're, we're humans, and animals are, are are both being oppressed. Where humans don't have access to healthy food, um, and you know, animals are are being exploited for human ends. And I had a student. Um, I was on the faculty until recently of the Institute for Humane Education, and I was a thesis advisor. And one of my students. Um, did this um, as her thesis. What she did was she did an analysis of um, grocery stores and convenience stores in lower-income neighborhoods in, in her area. She's out in the Midwest. Um, and then uh, spoke to managers, and she, she did an analysis of what kinds of vegetarian, actually vegan foods were available, not just vegan foods, but healthful vegan foods. And she put together a pamphlet for um, people in her community um, who wanted to or who would have wanted to eat more healthfully and more vegan um, but hadn't been able to afford to and uh, and gave them uh, a list of foods that were available, a list of foods that they could request that grocers would be willing to uh, w willing to order. Um, and, and basically it was like a little handbook for how to eat on a lower budget, how to be able to eat um, healthy vegan foods. And it's true. I mean, the, the you know, so-called mock meats, for instance, cost a lot of money. And a lot of this, the information that we are giving out to people as, you know, advocates is, um, is not necessarily information that uh, is, is useful to everybody. Not everybody can afford it. Yeah, I was looking at, like, uh, the, the Why Vegan pamphlets and stuff. They're, you know, they're really good in some areas, but a lot of the foods they recommend are kind of like, Junk uh, foods, yeah, vegan processed, junk foods. processed vegan junk food and stuff. That you know, I guess, I guess for people that are looking at <coughs> switching to a vegan diet and want something similar to what they're already eating, that has some kind of advantage. But on the other hand, it's not really promoting what we should be promoting, which is a, a healthful diet that you know helps your body as well as your uh, karma. No, I, think, <laughs> I think some people would say that. Um, those kinds of foods are helpful and that they can be transition foods and that sometimes if somebody 
is eating a lot of processed foods and processed animal foods, it's such a huge jump to go from that to vegan whole foods, you know? So it's, it's like a mixed bag. It's kind of like, what is the, what's the right thing, you know, because you want to make it easy too. Yeah. But. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And my uh, no, my concern, my students' concern was that the vegan, um, you know, the vegan meats are cost prohibitive to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be. I think that you know, even though they're processed, they can be. They're certainly more healthful in my mind than than eating meat. But and you're absolutely right. They do make the transition um, much easier for many people. Um, it's not for for many people. Giving up meat is. Um, it's asking a lot, a lot more than it seems like it is. It's asking people to, to, to give up an identity that they've been wedded to for probably, you know, all of their lives. And so if they can eat something that resembles meat and hold on to, you know, whatever that means to them, you know, whether it's simply yeah. that they enjoy the flavor and the texture or it's that they're not ready to have the psychological transition, the paradigm shift going from I'm a meat eater or a carnist is what I call them to <laughs> I'm a vegetarian – you know, so be it. It's uh, certainly I've seen it be very helpful um, for people transitioning. Right, comforts. Comfort exactly. Food. Well, Oreo cookies are vegan. <laughs> <laughs> hey. There you go. Um, oh. So, so you're a fan of the tofurkey? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have any? Um, any good tips for Thanksgiving, uh, people going home to their families and having to deal with those situations where there's a giant dead bird in the middle of the table and you're trying to eat vegan? Uh, well, you know, Carol Adams has a great book called Living Among Meat Eaters. Yeah. And in this book, one of the things she says, and, and I really um, support this, is never talk about meat when people are eating meat. Never talk about meat at the table. And it's it's interesting. It's a loaded. It's a it's a really loaded holiday for you know for obvious reasons. The entire holiday is organized around a dead animal. Um, you know, calling it Turkey. This is why I say Tofurkey Day now. Um, and I think it's you know for people to be first of all prepared that there's going to be a carcass on the table, um, and to be to do their best. Um, to not use, this is not a day to be advocating for veganism. Um, I think it's easy for people to think that because it's interesting, but because the day is organized around a dead animal, it's organized around a meat product, it's very easy to look at this as an occasion to have a conversation about meat. Um, and it usually backfires and is counterproductive. Um, what I used to do when, when my family had a turkey was I, I did ask, and they were fairly sensitive to me, and one request that I made was that it be, when it was on the table, it had been carved already, so I didn't have to look at the whole car, uh, carcass. And, you know, for some people this might be, I don't want to say happy medium because it's not happy and it's not really a medium, but easier than sitting um, looking at the carcass itself. What if you sat at the table with your back to the turkey? <laughs> yeah. It's a bad day to take a stand. It's the day that a lot of people want to, and it's uh, generally not very good timing. It's because it's so it's so wedded with symbolism, um, because it's so representative. I mean, you know, people do protest 
Tofurky Day for reasons other than the fact that animals are being killed, you know, turkeys are being killed specifically for this um, occasion. But it, it, it has a lot of symbolism. It's symbolic of, you know, family and togetherness and tradition and consumption, or I should say overconsumption. So that what happens, what transpires on um, Thanksgiving is often, um, you know, symbolic, meaningful, um, and people are, I guess I'll just reiterate what I said again, it's, it's not a good time to be talking about veganism. Um, what, if, what, what if you're sitting, I mean, obviously if you're sitting there and not eating the turkey, people are going to start teasing you or bringing it up. As well, usually I'm, happens, how do you deal with that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's a fine line. Um, you know, Carol talks about this, too. Um, there's a, a fine line between, um, you, you know, being being tolerant and allowing people to be disrespectful of you. Um, what I usually suggest to people, and um, and I've written about this in my book on um, on carnism, my, my um, doctoral dissertation research was on the psychology of meat consumption. And um, and I argued that um, that meat eating is reflective of an ideology or a philosophy, just as vegetarianism is. You know, so so I don't use the term uh, meat eater; I say carnist. And um, to when we understand that carnism is reflective of a, an ideology or a belief system, um, it, it can make it easier to understand that people's identity is very much caught up in the behavior of eating meat. Eating meat is a behavior that stems from a belief system that informs their sense of who they are on multiple levels, in multiple ways. So, And people are very defensive um, or can be very defensive when um, somebody, is, uh, somebody raises um, their awareness about the fact that they are choosing to eat animals. Most people, at least in my research, I found that most people experience some what we call cognitive moral dissonance, a moral discomfort around the fact that they're eating meat. Most Americans, um, you know, don't want to see animals suffer and, um, you know, much less know, much less know that they participate in that suffering. And when they're reminded of that, they can understandably become defensive. And and knowing that, you know, just, just being a vegan at the table, mm-hmm. um, you know, you are a mirror for a part of them that they may not be comfortable looking at yet. So it does, it is an invitation in a way. It's an invitation to open up a dialogue that can be a very productive dialogue. It's also an invitation for a person to become defended. Um, so I've been saying, you know, don't talk about meat eating, you know, or, or meat eating at Thanksgiving, but I was assuming, you know, we were talking about people who are going home to families who know that they are vegan and, um, you know, this has kind of been a part of who they are for a period of time, but you're suggesting, okay, say you're the vegan at the table, there are people there who are discovering you're vegan for the first time or maybe people who are antagonistic to you because you're vegan, what do you do? I would say to interact with them as you would anybody else, which is to be respectful, compassionate, and at the same time respectful and compassionate toward yourself and not let people disrespect disrespect you. Being teased for your belief system, um, being laughed at for your belief system, to me it's, it's, it's unacceptable. Um, happened to me once a long time ago, and I was at some relative's house, and I said, you know, if I were Hindu or if I were Jewish, if I were a different religion than you, and I were making choices because of my religious orientation, you wouldn't be laughing at me because you would know that it was 
inappropriate and hurtful to do that. And they just stopped and, you know, realized that because veganism is still, for some reason, veganism is still, you know, not mainstream enough for people to recognize um, that it is a legitimate and, uh, you know, very, very important philosophy. To some people, you could call it a religion. Um, <laughs> so effective communication is... Um, you know, the same way that we would communicate or a person would communicate around any issue. Um, to be able to be grounded and feel confident in the choices that they've made um, and at the same time to not feel that they have to impose their choices on somebody else. Being prepared for what people can say to you can make a very big difference. Um, and this is something I talk about in my book as well. Um, if you're caught off guard... You know, if somebody says, oh, you're just getting sentimental or you're overreacting, you're too emotional. If you're caught off guard, you're not going to know how to respond. You know, for, for example, as vegans, we're, you know, often either called extremists, you know, because we don't wear leather, or hypocrites because we bought something that was used, made of leather and it's used. Um, both of these are defensive responses. And if you're not prepared for them, if you don't have, you know, sort of your idea your understanding of this and idea prepared in advance, you can be caught off guard and end up getting into an argument. So the best advice that I have for people is to become informed. I do go over this to some degree in my book. Um, Carol Adams, I think, talks about this a little bit as well. Um, and to, to be proud of your choices without feeling that you have to impose your choices on other people. And that's a very fine line, and it's not easy to do, and it takes a lot of negotiating with yourself and others yeah and you know it's enough just to be doing what you're doing it seems like you just you know not try not to be too controversial it doesn't it doesn't necessarily help to be right and it's just like it like any other issue um you know a any other potential argument that comes up or a potential um conflict that comes up it's just you know, nonviolent, again, I have a section in my book on nonviolent conflict resolution. You know, just the content, you know, what is discussed is actually less important than the process, which is how it's discussed. When two people are having a conversation, what they're talking about is a lot less important than how they're talking about it. Yeah. Um, and if the process is respectful, meaning people are, are listening and people are open, people are empathic, um, then the content doesn't matter so much. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter that one person's vegan and one person's not, but I'm saying the way that they communicate around this is really, it's just basic healthy communication principles. Well, I hear tryptophan is really good for empathy. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can get them off guard while they're napping, you know, right after the, right after the meal. <laughs> um, it's, it turns out the, trip, the whole tryptophan thing is uh, kind of a myth that all... Um, oh, that's true. All poultry has about the same amount of tryptophan. And I was just actually looking up on the internet today... Uh, that um, spirulina and sunflower seeds both have higher percentages of tryptophan than uh, every everything except for dairy. Yeah, so you're drowsy just because you're lousy. <laughs> the, well, the, I think it's you're drowsy because you eat way too much on Thanksgiving and it makes you tired. <laughs> so if we eat seven pounds of sunflower seeds in one sitting, we'll be tired too. Well, if, if you eat seven pounds of anything, you know, if you're overeating <laughs> and especially a lot of car you know carby food and sugars and things that bring your blood sugar up and make you crash so so eating turkey for tryptophan isn't really uh a good excuse <laughs> <laughs> so um and you can get tryptophan other places better sources melanie if you were going to give one 
piece of advice we're we're just about out of time um what what would you emphasize as like the most important thing you could tell activists listen to vegan radio (laughs) keep doing what you're doing listen to vegan radio um well um i would tell activists to not to be uh you know not to be too cliche but i really believe in in gandhi's um advocating to become the change you wish to see in the world um, and to to really try to become the very person that you hope that the people around you choose to become or em- embrace the behaviors and the attitudes, I should say, that um, you, know, you want to see reflected around you. Um, and that applies to Thanksgiving dinner as well. Excellent. Fantastic. Excellent advice. That's one of my favorite Gandhi quotes. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show. And um, did you... St- I think when I talked to you before, you said you, you're working on another book now? Um, I am, and I actually, um, it's going to be coming out in 2009, um, published by Red Wheel Wiser Books, and it's called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, an Introduction <laughs> to Carnism. And it's about um, why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows, the psychology <laughs> and the sociology of uh, carnism, meat consumption. Sounds excellent. And uh, we've been talking with... Melanie Joy, whose current book is Strategic Action for Animals, a handbook on strategic movement building, organizing, and activism for animal liberation. Um, and we'll have that on our website at the vegan bus, or the vegan bus, veganradio.com. <laughs> and uh, it's available through Lantern Books, the great publishing company that does all these great books about animal rights. Thanks so much, Melanie. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks a lot. Have a happy uh, conflict-free Thanksgiving. Happy Tofurky Day to you, too. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So pulling out the guitar and singing Basted in Blood... Uh, it's not going to happen. Maybe not a good thing to do at the Thanksgiving. (laughs) We'll we'll put it into the podcast for our podcast listeners. Because I know that it's become a Thanksgiving tradition with vegan radio. Yeah. And a transition. A transition to a tradition. Scott's saying don't do it at Thanksgiving dinner table. Oh. Yes, don't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to have trouble. Well, good thing I'm not going to be around any turkey eaters on Thanksgiving. Uh, should be a good one. Um, so you've been listening to Vegan Radio on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, WXOJLP Northampton. Up next is Scene Red. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, check out our show notes at veganradio.com. And send us an email. And if you want to be our new co-host to replace Megan. (laughs) You have to be partly cute and partly (laughs) insipid. (laughs) Don't placate me. Goodbye. Uh. (laughs)